0: Terrorism, violent, criminal, extremist, radical, illegal. Those are the kinds of words attached to the Animal Liberation Front, a global anarchist movement fighting for animal liberation. If you listen to media outlets or governmental institutions like the FBI, the message is clear. Animal Liberation Front activists are scary. Keep your distance from that dangerous crowd. In order to counteract this dominant narrative, the North American Animal Liberation Press Office was formed in 1994 and to this day the Press Office takes a proactive stance to communicate the actions, strategies and philosophy of the animal liberation movement to the public. To discuss this public relations battle, I have with me Dr. Jerry Vlasak, a press officer, an animal rights activist, and board-certified trauma surgeon by profession. Uh, Jerry, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. I look forward to it.
0: As an icebreaker question, Jerry, let me ask you directly. Should we be afraid of the Animal Liberation Front? What is so scary about their activism?
1: The only thing scary about the Animal Liberation Front and other uh, clandestine organizations that uh, work to help animals uh, is what they can do to animal profiteers. Uh, Nobody in the Animal Liberation Front has ever harmed another human being and and, uh, is unlikely to ever do so. Uh, so there's no need to be afraid. The people that, are, that should be afraid are those who exploit animals for profit and who can see those profits directly impacted by actions of the animal liberation front who uh, exercise tactics such as economic sabotage and direct liberation of animals to attack these industries that survive off the abuse of animals.
0: Something you mentioned, and... Um might sound surprising for most people is that the animal liberation front is a non-violent movement so how come there's all of those strong words attached to a non-violent movement
1: it's all part of the extreme level of brainwashing that occurs uh, amongst our civilization and that it's It's not considered violence to murder billions of innocent animals every year for trivial reasons such as appetite preferences and and style preferences. And yet anyone who threatens to interfere with that very, very violent trade is deemed themselves to be violent as a a way to denigrate them and to to try to stop them from harming their uh, economic profits. So. Uh, We want to talk about violence. Let's talk about the people who abuse animals, who murder billions of animals just so they can skin them and and use their their fur for uh, fashionable coats. Uh, Let's talk about the violence that allows the killing of billions of animals so that they can satisfy their, their taste for animal flesh when it's completely unnecessary and, in fact, harmful to human health. Uh, These are the violent ones. Um, And and to turn around and and label people who are trying to help animals as violent is uh, simply a public relations ploy.
0: Do you believe that our governmental institutions have been captured by uh, the agriculture industry?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, not only the huge amount of subsidies that go by the, that are delivered by the government to animal agriculture, uh, heavily subsidized industries such as the meat and dairy industries, uh, as one example, uh, make it very clear that the government is in collusion with the animal agriculture industry. And to no surprise, these are the the uh, wealthy corporations that, you know, deliver suitcases full of cash to our, our government uh, uh our government uh, people every every year, so of course they're going to get their what they want, uh, which is the subsidization of their industry. And of course, you know, people in government are just like everybody else; they're anuered to the violence, they're they're used to, and brainwashed uh, by these industries into thinking that animal abuse is completely uh, acceptable, normal, uh, and uh, the the usual way of doing business. And of course, none of that's true.
0: Yeah, and. That gives um, the feeling that the game is rigged, um, and um, most certainly after the uh, what's happening right now in Canada with the agag laws uh, at the federal level, and um, how many obstacles we're putting in the way of uh, vegan activists, uh, it it feels like the goalpost is moving, and that um, we're playing. Uh, against such you know strong forces Um, so yes uh, civil disobedience is um, one answer against uh, this issue and I think that's the part that um, makes people anxious it's uh, breaking the law Um, what would you say about that?
1: First of all, point of clarification, at least here in the in the states, uh, we use uh, civil disobedience in a, in a different uh, in a different way, uh, civil disobedience, uh, to the best of my knowledge, at least as applied here, uh, implies breaking the law, but doing so openly uh, and accepting the consequences. So. For instance, if you were to chain yourself in front of a fur shore or something as a statement, uh, and obviously break the law, uh, and but fully expect to be arrested and, and accept those consequences, um, and we would call that civil disobedience. What the underground animal liberation movement is doing, such as the ALF, uh, is by our definition, not really civil disobedience. These are people that are breaking the law and getting away with it for the most part, um, and, uh, so that they can be out there to, to do it again. Uh, And breaking the law to help animals is uh, certainly justifiable, it's certainly uh, commendable. Uh, We support it 100%. uh, We have supported it for more than 20 years. Uh, So, yeah, that just is a a matter of uh, difference in terminology, though. We we don't use that uh, term civil disobedience for what the uh, ALF and other organizations are doing. And I'm sorry, your original question uh, again?
0: Yes, I, I just wanted you to comment on that. Uh, part of breaking the law, and um, I guess this is what people uh, are anxious about.
1: Well, if you look at every single uh, struggle for liberation, both uh, historically and concurrently in any movement, whether it was against apartheid in South Africa, whether it was against, uh, uh, whether it was for civil rights here in uh, North America, uh, uh, various anti-colonials. Anti-colonialist efforts in places like Algeria and other places—all of those—all of those struggles for liberation included an underground component, and all—and it's uh, necessary in all of these struggles because power is not going to give up their their dominance um, uh, just when you ask them nicely to do so. They have to be persuaded by a variety of different means, and not just uh, illegal means, but a variety of different means, but including illegal direct action what we call direct action and so I don't think the struggle for animal liberation is any different than these other struggles uh, unless you're a speciesist and you think that animals don't count uh, nearly as much as humans which we don't believe we we believe that animals are just as important as humans and so the animal liberation struggle it's just like all these other animals all these other liberation struggles throughout time and it will require a component that involves breaking the law. Each of those other struggles has mostly included the use of of real violence uh, on, uh, one could argue, in in self-defense, again, perfectly justifiable in my mind, in our minds, certainly justifiable to use violence to protect yourself if someone's trying to kill you. uh, You have a right to defend yourself. And animals are being murdered by the millions every day, and they have a right to defend themselves. And if they can't defend them, then we have the right to defend them um just like if your child is being abused you have a right to defend your child well we have a right to defend animals when they're being abused and even though that particular strategy hasn't been widely used in the struggle for animal liberation it would certainly be justifiable if it was ever used
0: yeah it is true that most uh, social justice movements have had um, a component of you know breaking the law and i think this story is not told as much as you know the the part of peaceful protest uh, and such, I was listening to one of your interviews and you mentioned how Nelson Mandela was um, uh, you know part of a something like Animal Liberation Front. You know uh, he was bombing places, he was breaking the law in many ways before uh, being imprisoned um, and uh, uh, becoming the Nelson Mandela. We know uh, who we love, um, but there was this part of it, and people don't know about it. We 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 don't inform people about uh, this uh, history.
1: Yes, not not just in uh, not just Mandela in South Africa, but in basically any any struggle. I mean, people like to quote people uh, who are more peaceful, like Martin Luther King, and and so forth, and 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 civil rights struggles. But there were also people that were breaking the law to. Uh, make Martin Luther King seem a lot more reasonable and people were a lot more reasonable and willing to talk to Martin Luther King about making some changes, uh, compared to say Malcolm X or, uh, or the Black Panthers and some of the other groups that were, that were more radical. But if you look at every single struggle, it's always been that way. Gandhi, I mean, Gandhi's always held up as this peaceful person who, who has somehow achieved liberation from the British uh, without raising a finger. Uh, And yet there were plenty of armed struggle uh, groups going on in in India uh, that just made Gandhi look like uh, somebody that we they could deal with. And so every struggle has involved these kinds of things. There's always uh, some component of those willing to break the law to stop uh, a horrendous uh, type of oppression against uh, against the uh, against the uh, the uh, the oppressed. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's human nature. It's uh, the the normal current of of things. There's nothing shocking about it. Um, Because of this illegal component, I guess it makes your work on covering the actions of the animal liberation front more sensitive because you really have to protect your sources and be careful of uh, what you report on. So, what kind of measures do you take to uh, to do the work you do?
1: We are not uh, members of the underground, we're not members of the ALF. Uh, what we typically happens is that we receive anonymous communiques from the people who are breaking the law, and we take those communiques and transform them into press releases and, and other forms of social media posts and, and websites. Uh, information, and and we broadcast that to the general public and to the mainstream media. We've done hundreds of interviews with mainstream media from Fox News to 60 Minutes to uh, a lot of other uh, TV shows, and we, we basically talk about why people are breaking the law to help animals, what their ideology is. These are not just people out having a good time breaking the law, becoming, you know, vandals and that sort of thing. So we explain all that. And most people are interested and most people are sympathetic. Uh, I think when you show people, just the general public, I'm talking about non vegans, much less activists, but even non vegans, if you show them the horrendous amount of animal abuse that's going on behind the scenes, and then you explain, well, these people are going in there and trying to stop that uh, by a, a direct maneuver, in addition to all the people that are trying to change the laws and educate the public and do all those other things, uh, then most people are pretty sympathetic about it. We, uh, you'd be surprised at how many people uh, are accepting of these types of uh, tactics uh, just within the general public. And so that's basically the way we carry on. Most of the communiques we receive are, are received by email nowadays. I mean, there was a time when we used to get phone calls and letters in the mail and things like that. But most of the time we receive these anonymous communiques. Um, and we don't want to know who those people are. We have no idea who it is that's out there helping animals by breaking the law. We don't want to know who they are. It would be dangerous for them. It would be dangerous for us uh so yeah, we don't know who that is and so basically, that's what we do uh we 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 advertise that actions that are going on. we let people know what they're doing and why they're doing it uh we we talk directly to the media, we talk to other activists and let them know, and we try to inspire other activists to get out there and do the same thing we want more people doing this type of action. We think it's an important part of the struggle for animal liberation. It's not the only part. It's not like we want everybody to do this and do nothing else, Uh, but there aren't that many people doing it, and so we would like to see more people do it. We'd like to let people know that they can do it, how to do it if they want to, uh, and then how to report back to us uh, when they do do it so that we can uh, tell more people about it.
0: You're based in the U.S., uh, I believe. And in the U.S. you have the First Amendment, uh, freedom of expression. How important is uh, freedom of expression uh, in order to do the work uh, you're doing?
1: Uh, we do enjoy more more uh, uh, right to free speech here in the U.S. than other places, uh, at least for now. I mean, I may, this may all change, of course, at any moment, but Uh, For instance, if I was in the United Kingdom where the ALF got its start and where there was been historically a lot more activity uh, involving breaking the law, uh, it's against the law to, to advocate for what I'm doing or to tell people that we think you should be out there breaking the law. They wouldn't allow that kind of speech. There used to be a group called the ALF Support Group that published a magazine that talked all about. The uh, actions that were going on underground and how you could get involved if you wanted to and and that sort of thing and and they uh, the government shut that down and made that uh, illegal to talk about and many of the animal rights activists that have been arrested on. Uh, other charges for doing perfectly legal things uh, like protesting have been giving have been given orders that they're not allowed to communicate in the animal rights uh, uh, realm at all anymore. They're not allowed to post things on the Internet or or talk about them in the media or even have contact with people like me who are other. Are you that are other animal rights activists? Uh, so it's much more oppressive in places like the UK. On the other hand, the actions are still going on. Uh, there's other people that are like us that are willing to talk about it. And we do, we post things from the UK on our website and social media, uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, there, um, but yeah, we do, we do enjoy a, a, a privilege here that allows me to talk to you about what I'm talking to you about today and, uh, to, and to actually not only talk about the things that are happening, but also encourage other people to get out there and, and do more of it.
0: I think it's important to, Think about your actions and even your existence as uh, something pro democratic in, in a sense. And um, you were describing how um, what you're doing is not civil disobedience, not in the definition that, that we know of. But I like to think about it as civil disobedience, whether it is covert or not. And there is a long tradition of breaking the law in the name of your convictions in, uh, in the U.S. Um, and I'm thinking right now of uh, uh, Toro, uh, Henry David Toro, who uh, stopped paying his uh, poll tax uh, because he believed the, uh, his tax money was uh, funding the uh, American-Mexican War and also the uh, expansion of uh, slavery in the um, uh, Southwest. And uh, he was imprisoned for that. And that was back in the 1840s. Um, So there's a long democratic tradition of the people breaking the law in the name of their convictions. Um, Do you see yourself as being part of that long tradition?
1: I think so. I think starting with the Boston Tea Party and the founding of this uh, very country uh, through Henry David Thoreau and lots of other famous people that have been willing to go to jail for what they believed in. Um, uh, I think that I, we consider ourselves part of, as a movement, we consider ourselves as part of that tradition of identifying laws that are wrong, that are oppressive, that are uh, harmful and and violent, and standing up against those laws. Um, absolutely. And I, I think there's, uh, we're, we're seeing a lot of that today, but uh, I think I think we're certainly part of that Part of that
0: movement. So, talking about prison, uh, there is a section in your website uh, listing activists who have been imprisoned for their actions, and I want you to tell us more about them and uh, the high stakes and, and the high price uh, they had to pay for their uh, activism.
1: Well, first of all, there have been uh, literally thousands of uh, actions that have been committed by uh, ALF and other underground warriors in the United States uh, in the last 30 or 40 years. And a very small handful of people have ever been caught uh, and even fewer have ever been sent to prison. So um, it's actually a very, very, very small percentage of people who ever go to prison for uh, breaking the law to help animals. Um that said, there are a few people and we try to support those people. We do our best we can to support people that that do go to prison for helping animals. Uh, currently, there are a handful of prisoners that are that are currently in, in prison for animal rights activities. Um, and we do everything we can to support them. If you go to our website, we, we list their addresses, we tell you how you can write letters to them and support them and send them money and and that sort of thing. So let them know they're not forgotten that we uh, we hold them in in great esteem. uh, And that we will do everything we can to help them. So uh, yeah, there are, you know, especially with the uh, passage of the Animal Enterprise Protection Act, which was originally passed and then upgraded a few years later to the Animal Enterprise Terrorism Act with very inappropriate labeled uh, law for sure. uh, That does involve primarily sentence enhancements, which sentencing enhancements, which means you can get longer prison terms if you're convicted for the same crimes, uh, if they are able to apply that law under certain circumstances. And it has been applied a very few handful of times, uh, but it hasn't stopped anybody and it won't stop anybody. People that are willing to break the law and help animals are not going to be stopped by threatening them with longer prison terms. and, and especially since, you know, it's it's very unlikely that anybody uh, gets caught when they when they do this sort of thing. So um, we're not particularly worried about that. I mean, there, there was a little bit of backlash after the uh, 9-11-2001 uh, um, actions that happened here in the United States. Everybody kind of ran for cover for a little while, but it, it wasn't long and it wasn't much. And people are as active now as I, I think they've ever been. And I don't think for the most part people are. I mean, there are people. People are willing to risk their freedom. Obviously, these are very uh, courageous and and uh, strong people who are willing to risk their free their own freedom to help animals, and so that shouldn't be minimized. Uh, that said, it's not that difficult to avoid uh, avoid capture and, and uh, imprisonment.
0: And I don't think we we listed uh, the actions that the Animal Liberation Front takes. So can you make uh, a list um, uh, of the concrete actions that um, uh, the, the movement takes? Uh,
1: well, the actions fall under basically two broad categories, and one is economic sabotage, where you uh, try to uh, affect the profits of those who are, are, are hurting animals for, for a living. And the other is actually liberating animals and and putting them into the, returning them to the wild or taking them to sanctuaries or or good homes where they can live out their lives. Now that depends on whether the animals are wild and capable of surviving in the wild and they could be just returned to the wild, but domesticated animals, for instance, those have to uh, find homes uh, with people or sanctuaries where they can uh, live out their lives. So basically liberations and sabotage are uh, the two main categories. There, There also could be a, third category, such as intimidation, where people are threatened with um, uh, various things, including violence, uh, if they don't stop abusing animals. Uh, those, that's probably, that's used a lot less often than the other two. Um, as far as concrete actions, uh, there's, there's a concerted campaign here in North America, at least against the fur industry, and the form of actions that most typically takes is going to fur farms, of which there's only a few dozen left in, in North America, and going onto those fur farms at night, uh, which are relatively poorly guarded and, and have relatively little security, and releasing wild animals, typically mink, sometimes foxes and coyotes and other animals, and releasing those animals into the wild habitat where they're perfectly capable of surviving. There have been lots of studies that have proven that these animals can survive on their own. They're not domesticated, even like house cats or or dogs. Uh, They still retain uh, genetically wild uh, uh, genomes and are able to survive in the wild. And so by releasing the animals into the wild, number one, Uh, the animals themselves get the chance at freedom, where 100% of them will be murdered uh, when it comes around November, December, about this time of year. Every year, 100% of them are are murdered uh, uh, so that they can be skinned and and their their skin sold. Uh, But it also uh, significantly impacts the economic uh, uh, practices of those who raise these animals in tiny cages for their entire lives. so this that basically has the effect of doing both things It has a certain effect is a form of economic sabotage, and it's also offering a chance at freedom to the animals who are all going to be one hundred percent killed um, uh, if left to the to the per farmer. So this is a this is a, a, a typical um, uh, example of what the ALF can do here in the United States, and and again by concentrating in against one industry. Uh, it's been very effective. So that dozens of fur farms have closed after they were attacked by the Animal Liberation Front or other groups. Uh, So it's it's an effective form of activism. We've seen the uh, number of fur farms decrease dramatically. We've seen the number of animals killed for their fur decrease dramatically. It was in the four to 10 million a year range back in the late 90s and early 2000s. Now it's down to just barely a million in a year, still way too many, of course. But uh, there have been huge strides made against the fur industry here in North America. And one of the reasons is because what these people are doing, it's not the only reason, but it's definitely part of it. Of course, there's also legislation that people have pushed or the sale of fur and, and the raising of animals for fur is illegal in the entire state of California now. Uh, it's, it's illegal in many other uh, towns and cities and jurisdictions. Uh, so yeah, there there's other there's other things that have been involved. But part of that struggle has been uh, at the uh, um, with the, uh, the ALF and other groups that have, have fought against the fur farms. Um, they've also been active against vivisection. I mean, the press office was formed in in reaction to a raid on the University of Iowa. Uh, where 401 animals were liberated and a a large amount of economic sabotage was inflicted on a laboratory there. And there was nobody like us speaking out to the media, to the general public about why people were doing that sort of thing. And so we, uh, Dr. Stephen Best, who's a professor at the University of Texas, and I, uh, who had known each other for a while, got together and and formed the current iteration of the press office and have been operating uh, to do that ever since.
0: Something I want to mention is that other animal rights organizations are quite supportive of the Animal Liberation Front. They don't adhere to um, the, the narrative put out there by um, most, you know, mainstream media and uh, governmental institutions. A good example of that is PETA, I think is a is a good ally of the Animal Liberation Front. So yeah, you you enjoy quite a good reputation in, in the animal rights community. The Animal Liberation Front is not considered marginal. Do you think it, it helps your work?
1: I actually you might take issue with that to some degree. PETA has always been a supporter of underground direct action. In fact, they often serve as a sort of de facto press office for the Animal Liberation Front back during the Uh, 1990s, when Operation Biteback was going on, it was a a concerted campaign against the fur industry here in North America. Uh, Frequently, PETA were the people who were speaking out about it and who were showing videotapes back in those days, because that's what now they recorded it, recorded video footage of these fur farms. and So PETA was very involved, and yes, uh, Ingrid Newkirk in particular has always been a supporter of Underground Direct Action. Uh, Other groups, not so much, though, for instance, some of the really even bigger groups like Humane Society of the United States, for instance, uh, are very much opposed to illegal direct action. in fact, they won't even allow uh, the press office uh, to uh, distribute information at their conferences that they hold because they're 100% against illegal direct action. And part of that, I think, or at least most of it, I think stems from the fact that they don't want their donors uh, refusing to send them money because they're uh, advocating for illegal action. And some people are like that. I, I was involved with Sea Shepherd Conservation Society uh, for a number of years. In fact, I was on their board of directors. I was uh, one of their uh, uh, officers. I was on their ships on uh, a number of different occasions. And uh, after going up to the ice floes of um of the Gulf of St. Lawrence and confronting sealers and not just taking pictures of them clubbing the seals, but actually standing between them and the seals and refusing to let them kill the seals. Um uh, there were altercations and we and we uh, we created a disturbance and we were arrested. And uh, as a as a consequence I was actually asked to step down from Sea Shepherd because they did, they had at least one or two of their major donors told them we're gonna quit giving you money if you don't Disassociate yourself from this guy who was actually standing there and you know confronting the sealers and you know having physical altercations with them. So I think you know some organizations are, are more supportive than others, and I think a, a lot of grassroots activists, people such as yourself, that are out there pushing the, the the general message of animal rights and and how we can be better and more effective activists. I think are at least willing to talk about what we talk about and are at least willing to say this is part of the struggle. It's not the only part of the struggle. It may or may not even be the most important part of the struggle, uh, but it is a part of the struggle, just like it's a part of any any struggle for liberation. And I think that's the most common narrative. But there are people when when money's at stake that will, that will say what they feel like they need to say in order to keep that money rolling in.
0: It's interesting. I did not know about it. It's a bit of a sensitive question. Don't answer if you don't want to. But um, how do you get your funding uh, for the press office? And I guess the actions that the Animal Liberation Front takes don't require enormous funding, but in terms of you know those who find themselves in prison and such... Are there any initiatives to pay for uh, their legal fees uh, uh, and things like that?
1: Uh, well, kind of a couple part question. As far as funding for the press office, uh, that's just done from local activists to volunteers, uh, you know, people that see our website or our social media uh, and decide to, to send us money. It's very minimal. We don't get a lot of money. We have a very small budget. Uh, I, at times, I've stepped up and funded it when it, when it needed funding, uh, none of us take a salary. None of us are paid. Uh, we don't have uh, expansive offices anywhere. We don't own any buildings or you know anything like that. So we, uh, we we're all volunteers. Uh, a lot of times, um, travel. We we do a lot of traveling to different uh, animal rights conferences that do allow us to um, uh, either speak at the conference or uh, distribute materials at the conference, and so most of that's funded out of our own pockets uh so yeah we have a pretty uh, small budget uh that is supported we do have some supporters out there we have uh we have a mailing list with several thousand people on it some of those people send us money so that's how we get our our funding as far as those that are out there doing we don't send that money by the way to the to the underground the alf we don't know who they are so we wouldn't know where to send the money uh and it would be illegal to do that i mean it would be like sending money to hamas or or something i mean it, it we can't actually send those people money. Where do they get their money? I don't know. I, I think a lot of them just dig it out of their own pockets or borrow it from friends or relatives or something. I I don't I can't really speak to that. Uh, but again, it doesn't take a lot. I mean, uh, it doesn't take much to drive to a fur farm and uh, you know climb through the woods for a little ways and use a pair of bolt cutters to open up some fences and and let animals free. It doesn't take a lot to throw a brick through a first door window or. Uh, other forms of economic sabotage like that. So I, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of uh, funding that's necessarily uh, out there for those kind of guys. Uh, and what was the last part of the question? Something about
0: uh, the legal fees of uh, activists that are in position.
1: Right. Again, there's there's so few people that actually go through the legal system. But we've always been there to help people if we can. Um, we can. We certainly help people with initial legal expenses. We can't always cover all of their legal expenses for everything they do. But there are other lawyers in the movement that are animal rights people themselves uh, who oftentimes step forward. Um, there's a, a group group in Portland called the Civil Liberties Defense Committee that's a, a group of lawyers out there that are uh, pro-animal rights and, and will also often help people at no expense. So there are lawyers in the movement that uh, are available to help people
0: and uh you mentioned how you you were like Hamas but there are some major differences first of all you're nonviolent also you're not centralized there's no you know leadership uh well for the animal liberation front the animal liberation front is um uh, decentralized and is nonviolent uh you you're not killing people um so you know it's it's sad to 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 see that the animal liberation front is marginalized and um, perceived, um, uh, even legally, as um, as much of a threat for uh, domestic security as uh, a terrorist group like Hamas.
1: Yeah, but that's the way the you know the world works. I mean, the African National Congress was considered a terrorist group. There's been lots of other organizations out there that have been considered. Ah, uh, terrorist groups. Just because you know whoever is oppressing the people that they're they're fighting for, or oppressing the animals in this case, uh, you know it, it threatens the status quo. And so that that term is thrown around a lot. But you're right. The Animal Liberation Front is uh, pointedly nonviolent. They're they're pointedly anti-violence. They're trying to stop violence. They're not trying to. They don't promote violence in any form of way. They're anti-violent. Uh, so, they, but again, uh, as far as the federal government's concerned, I mean, in, uh, I testified at a Senate hearing back in 2005, I believe, and one of the uh, head FBI people stood up and said that the uh, animal rights uh, organizations were the number one domestic terror threat uh, uh, here in the United States. And that's, you know, despite things like uh, the killing all those people at Waco and all the other uh right-wing militias that are out there that are actually harming people, and you know, and yet they, they decide to frame the animal rights uh, movement as the number one domestic terrorist threat. And again, it, it's a threat to those profits. It's a threat to big agriculture. It's a threat to big businesses that then filters down to the FBI, who then has to step up and say, okay, well, we'll make them the number one terrorist threat. That way we can try to stop them. Uh, but despite all that, they haven't had much effect. And as you mentioned before, the ALF in particular is a decentralized organization. There's no central leadership. There's no card that you carry or a, a secret handshake or uh, dues that you have to pay every month or anything like that. It's a group of people that get together and decide they're going to act and they don't know who the other group next door is and they don't know who anybody else is. Or uh, And therefore, it makes it very, very difficult for law enforcement to infiltrate them. And that's why they've been able to be function for 30 or 40 years in this country with, like I said, very, very, very few people ever going to prison.
0: And I I read some of the transcripts of uh, uh, back in 2005 of those uh, FBI agents talking about uh, the threat that uh, the Animal Liberation Front poses and it's hilarious. It is uh, truly, you know, you, you read the language they use and you think that this is like a uh, existential threat. Um, it's like w- we're living in two different realities, and yeah, it's uh, weird. It's strange. Well,
1: we are. We are an existential threat to their profit, and that's 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 all they care about. We are a threat to their profit. If people quit drinking milk, and people quit eating animal flesh, uh, people quit wearing fur, and then yeah, their profits are going to go down, and they don't they don't like that.
0: Yeah, don't mess with the money. <laughs> um, so we were talking about funding, and you also have uh, an online uh, uh, e-commerce, uh, you know, shop uh, where you, you sell uh, the book, many books, and different uh, interesting items. Um, but in particular, the ALF strikes again: collected, uh, collected writings of the Animal Liberation Front in North America which is, uh, um, like I said, a book on, um, on the many uh, actions that were taken by the Animal Liberation Front. I have not uh, read the book yet. I have ordered the book, and I'm waiting for it. I'm uh, excited about it because uh, you know it, it has 700 pages, and I'm very curious uh, about the different stories that uh, I'm about to read about. Um so can you maybe highlight some of the stories that are present in the book?
1: Uh, first of all the book is uh a, a book that was edited and, and compiled by someone named Peter Young uh who is one of the few people who ever did go to prison uh he he liberated uh tens of thousands of of captive mink uh and destroyed a lot of uh materials that were integral in their exploitation and uh, eventually went to prison and served uh, a couple of years, I I believe in prison. But once, once he got out, then he started speaking about what he had done and why he had done it and, and, and was able to inspire a lot of people, still inspires a lot of people. He's also written a number of books that talk about what he's done and what other people have done. And this is sort of the latest compilation that he's come up with. And it's a, it's a lovely, um, Compilation of stories about people that have been involved in the underground and the, some of the things that they've done. Um, there's great stories about how Rod Coronado sunk half of the uh, Icelandic whaling fleet uh, in the in the harbor. He basically crawled onto their uh, whaling ships in the middle of the night and opened up these valves that let the seawater flow into the ships. and And there's great pictures of the ships sitting there underwater in the in the harbor and unable to. Uh, unable to go out and kill whales any longer Uh, there's a really poignant story uh, about a raid at a hospital uh, called harbor ucla medical center in southern california and it's interesting it was december of uh, 1983 when somebody a very early alf cell uh, broke into that facility and liberated 12 dogs that were being experimented on and, and eventually would have been killed uh, and the reason that it's particularly interesting to me is that was December of 1983. In 1984, I started my surgical residency at that exact same hospital. And so six months earlier uh, from my stepping into the door of the hospital, the uh, Animal Liberation Front had liberated uh, 12 dogs from that facility. Now, I wasn't even vegan then. I, I, hadn't, I had not come to the animal rights struggle at all. So it wasn't me. I, I didn't have anything to do with it. <laughs> Uh, but no, it, but it, it it was just uh, it was just a, a great story. And, and one of the earlier uh, stories of The Underground, uh, there, there's too many stories to talk about, but it's a great read. And I, I've enjoyed reading it. And I'm sure you're going to enjoy it a lot when you when you get it. And I the other the other good thing about the book is it has a lot of how to information. So it has a lot of information in there about how to do research and how to come up with a plan and how to, execute a plan if you're interested in helping animals directly by either liberating them or, or stopping people from abusing them that are abusing them so it's a it's really a great resource and i, I think everybody should read it if they get the chance yes. you don't have to buy it from us you can get it on amazon or, or anywhere else yeah uh,
0: amazing you know we're recording this uh just before uh, Christmas and uh, this is my Christmas gift, you know, (laughs) that I'm uh, offering to myself. Um, So you mentioned a bit about uh, your life story, Jerry. So I'm really curious how you found yourself. You mentioned how you were not vegan, so you were born in a normal American family like most vegans. who. ate meat, uh, at the dinner table and, uh, was not so much interested in, uh, the animal rights movement. Uh, you know, for my family, this is just very alien to them. Um, so how did you find yourself from that to becoming vegan to then, um, becoming an officer for, uh, the press office of, uh, uh one of the most radical, and I'm, using the word radical in a good way, uh, radical, um, uh, uh, you know, journalistic outlet uh, for um, one of the most radical animal rights organization out there, movement out there.
1: Yeah, like you said, I grew up uh, in a very normal household, grew up in Texas, uh, ate animal flesh my whole life, never really gave it any thought, Um, was brainwashed like everybody else. Uh, in addition, I also went to college and then medical school uh, in Texas, and the issue never really came up. Even in medical school, there was nothing on nutrition or um, any, any thoughts given to uh, animal uh, agriculture or animal experimentation. We didn't do any animal experimentation in medical school. Um, there was a single lab where you, it was optional and you could go there and watch them kill a dog by injecting it with different drugs and and, and see the effects on its physiology. Uh, but that was it. Uh, it wasn't like we were dissecting animals or doing anything like that at all. Uh, and then when I got into my surgical residency, that was at Harbor UCLA that I mentioned earlier, Uh, there was animal experimentation going on and I knew about it and I participated in it because I was told to and I thought, okay, well, they tell me to do it, I'll do it. And I wrote a lot of papers about what I did and I I really burnished my uh, academic career and and it just never, but it just never occurred to me. There was just, you know, I was just completely brainwashed uh, uh, and it never occurred to me that anything was wrong. Although I did notice that despite all the research on animals that was going on, it wasn't making any difference for helping people nothing I discovered or wrote about or or, or you know, looked at in the lab ever made things better for any human being. So there was already this kind of a crack in the facade. Like, why are we killing these animals when, you know, we could be using all this money and, and time and effort to, you know, be helping people? And the reason I became a surgeon is I'm a very practical person. I want to fix something. If I see something broken, I want to fix it. I'm not somebody that wants to treat diabetes for 20 or 30 years and and see people, you know, gradually succumb to the disease or maybe get better. I like to fix things right away. So if you have an appendix that's ruptured, I want to go in there and take out your appendix and you'll be (laughs) fine as frog's hair in, you know, another few days, you know. Uh, and lately, the last 20 years of my career I spent as a trauma surgeon, so you come to me with a gunshot wound to your abdomen or a stab wound or you're in a terrible car accident or something. I fix it. You know, That's what I did. Uh, so I, I look at what works and I apply what works and, and try to make things better. Well, I, I sort of applied that same idea to animal rights um, once I did get involved in animal rights and I, I got involved when I read a couple of books. Uh, one was by a philosopher named Tom Reagan. Uh, called The Struggle for Animal Rights. And the other one was a book called uh, The Diet for a New America, which was written by John Robbins, who was the heir to the Baskin and Robbins uh, ice cream uh, fortune. And uh, he wrote a book about, you know, each form of animal exploitation and animal agriculture and how the animals suffered, but also how it was bad for human health and also how it was bad for the environment. And when I read all that, I why didn't I know all this? I mean, it was all well researched and and documented and referenced and it wasn't just some guy's opinion. I mean, it was, it was factual and being a factual person, I looked at all that information and I said, why didn't anybody ever tell me about this? How could I have lived for 30 years and not known about this information? And so I immediately said, I don't want any part of that. And so not only did I become vegan right away in a few days, uh, I also started talking to my patients uh, about it. I was in, practice in surgery at the time. And I started showing my patients, I go, you know, here's the facts. And and I gave them information that came from Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, for instance, an organization based in Washington, D.C., which is great about talking about human health issues and, uh, and a meat-based diet. And I said, you know, you can do whatever you want when you go home, but while you're in the hospital and while you're under my care, uh, I don't want you smoking cigarettes, you know, I don't want you shooting heroin, okay, and I don't want you eating animal flesh because it's not good for you, and so you go home, you do whatever you want when you go home, but while you're here in the hospital under my care, this is what I would like you to do, and most people were receptive, and I would give them information to read about it, and I don't know if anybody ever went home and became vegan or not uh i don't know because we di- i didn't really see them for very long after that usually once i get them fixed up and they're on their way and i never see them again so but that was kind of how i got started and as i learned more about the struggle for animal liberation i was exposed to everything from you know handing out pamphlets on uh, how to go vegan to uh doing even demonstrations with PETA and and things like that and at some point, I became exposed to the animal liberation front and people that were working uh, illegally to help animals. And when I looked at everything, I thought, well, what's the most effective? Uh, what, what pound for pound, what gets you the best results? And I thought illegal direct action did. And on top of that, nobody else was talking about it. And very few people were doing it. So I thought, well, maybe this is my niche. And so I thought there's not much. Nobody else is talking about it. Nobody. And I had some credibility coming from the medical field. So I said, you know what, maybe I'll use that my credibility uh, and step up and start talking about this. And maybe people will take it seriously. And maybe we can uh, get this to gain wider acceptance. And that's pretty much what I've been doing ever ever since.
0: That's amazing. That's truly an inspiring journey. And Have you been inspired by the progress of the animal rights movement and the vegan cause uh, throughout those past decades?
1: a tricky question. I think, think, yes, we have done some good things and we have made some progress. And I think there are more vegans around today than there were then. And I think that uh, we have laws now against animal abuses that we didn't have then. so yeah, we have made some progress, and and animal rights is a is a something that's more widely talked about now, and most people know about it. If they're not vegan, they at least know about it. They, if they haven't uh, if they haven't become vegan, it's not so much that they don't know about it, but with online media now, there's almost no reason that somebody would not know about uh, animal abuses. Back when I was becoming vegan, I mean, it was basically you read books or pamphlets. Uh, you didn't really have Instagram or TikTok or anything like that, where you could watch these videos of animals uh, and and what they go through in the uh, factory farming uh, uh, arena and so forth. So I I think we have made a lot of progress in that regard. On the other hand, and and we are killing fewer animals for fur, for instance. Uh, uh, Circuses are banned in a lot of cities and and even states now. Um, So I, I think we have made some progress. On the other hand, more animals are dying every year Uh, than they were when I got started, uh, because there's more people and there's more animals being killed, mainly for food, uh, than there were then. So uh, other times I'm uh, not as optimistic, and I I don't know how this is all going to end. I I personally think that uh, we're on sort of a uh, a trajectory that human populations will eventually – decrease significantly, whether it's from uh, another pandemic, or whether it's from, you know, something else, environmental destruction, and, and so forth. And, and I think uh, this is a a pretty pessimistic viewpoint, but I I don't think we're going to see the complete abolishing of uh, animal exploitation until there's a lot fewer human beings on the planet. And The good news is that may not be that much longer. The bad news is I don't know that we're ever going to see this vegan world where we still have 10 billion people walking around the planet and everybody's vegan. I just uh, don't think that's going to happen. So I I don't I hate to be a a pessimist, but I just uh, don't think that's going to happen. On the other hand, we've we've all got a. Uh, we've all got the opportunity and we all have the duty, I think, to keep doing what we can to uh, minimize or, or decrease the amount of animal exploitation, animal suffering and animal, ex- uh, animal torture and killing that's going on. So uh, that's, that keeps me getting out of bed every morning.
0: So you don't believe in the revolution of um, uh, lab-grown meat?
1: Well, I think all those things will happen. Yeah, I think, I think it'll be much more widely accepted. Uh, I think that we will be immense amount of progress in the future, but I, I don't think we're going to ever get rid of uh, certainly uh, factory farming and animal exploitation for food. I, I, I think that other factors will come together before we ever get there and, and, and have a, an effect on, on human overpopulation. I'm, That's a controversial stance, even within the animal rights movement, I think. And um, but I've never been shy about saying what I think. So,
0: well, you know, um, I'm curious about something. Um, I've had discussions with various vegans and animal rights activists, and sometimes I get a, a feeling from them of uh, misanthropy. You know, and it's understandable they see humans being. So cruel to animals on a daily basis, um, but you're a doctor. You like people. You don't hate them. But what do you say about that feeling um, um, arising in 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 people? Because I feel like just from the basis of you know mental health, it's not very <laughs> um, helpful for your own happiness uh, to to think this way, but. Um, what are your thoughts
1: well I, I don't think it's a coincidence that we're seeing you know an increasing amount of of psychiatric illness in our in our culture with people suffering from depression and and all these other uh mental health disorders and I think a lot of that is the the brainwashing that we go through is uh as a result of living in a capitalist dominated society where uh the people with all the money decide what messages we hear and and what we how we act and what we eat and and what we do and i think we get that from a very early age and i think it it does go against the human grain at some at some point i mean most people accept the brainwashing and do okay with it um i i've always said that you know 80 percent of people You can tell them what's going on. You can show them what's going on on factory farms. You can show them what's going on in the fur trade. They just don't care because they've been so brainwashed that they, it's not because they're human. It's because they're a brainwashed human. I don't think there's anything specifically about being a human being uh that makes you that way i think it's the fact that you're brainwashed from the time you're two years old to believe that it's normal to abuse animals uh whether it's to eat them or to see them in circuses and rodeos and everywhere else and so the other 20 percent of people have been brainwashed but they're they're able to break out of that like i was and like you were and like so many people that we we both know are Uh, and that's why i think when we do outreach if we do a cube or a Uh, If we hand out white vegans or we do that thing, I think, you know, eight out of 10 people aren't going to care. They're going to throw the pamphlet away or they're going to walk right by the TV screens. But 20 percent of people will at least think about it and they may not change right then and there, but they'll think about it. And they have the potential for change like you and I did and like so many other people have. So that's that's kind of, again, what keeps us going is that we think there are those 20 percent of people. And if we could get 20 percent of the of the country to, or the world to be vegan, then you're right. It would be a it'd be a tidal wave and it would push along a lot of those other 80 uh, percent. And in, in theory, it could happen. It could happen. I I just don't I just don't know. I, like I said, I've been doing this for 30 years now and I just haven't seen it yet. And uh, maybe it's coming in the next 30 years. I hope so.
0: Well what worries me is um countries like China where um you know the the, the governments are not at all uh, uh, democratic and there's this uh growing middle class and demand for for meat and I feel like there's almost no actions uh around um you know in the field of animal rights and and veganism in those countries and regions that's where you, you have um most people and the the greatest demand for animal products
1: absolutely. the only the only uh, the only light in that uh, in that scenario is that historically uh, places like that have looked to the west for uh, inspiration. And so, for instance, if we could get fur banned in the United States, if we get fur banned in Western Europe, well, yeah, they wear a lot of fur in China. But they wear fur because Louis Vuitton and, and Dior and all these other, infendies are pushing fur. And if those companies are no longer pushing fur, they're not going to go out and start wearing fur anyway. They look to the West to see what people in the West are doing. So if we were to ban fur in North America and Western Europe, then the fur, fur animals killed for their fur in China would also go way down, if not go away altogether. And you could look at the same way in, in the, the animal agriculture. If we, if we find ways to get around the current system of animal agriculture, like you said, with uh, cultured, uh, uh, lab cultured meat and, and things like that, if, if, if people in China and India and, and these other highly populated areas see what we're doing, then they're gonna wanna emulate that. Just like they're emulating us for the way we kill pigs and eat them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they emulate that. They, the reason they're doing that when they when they have the ability to is because we've shown them by TV commercials that that's the thing to do. So there is a way to change it. You're right. There's not going to be a bunch of activists uh, uh, locking themselves to the uh, fur stores in China because they'll throw you in jail and throw away the key. Right. I mean, they're, they don't they don't care. They've got no rights over there. So that's not going to happen. But on the other side of the coin is they may look to us and see what we're doing and and want to emulate that and and we could make progress in that respect
0: mm-hmm. so a question I had um, was what uh, you know you mentioned how the press office is uh, active on uh, various social medias I uh, enjoy your post on Instagram and uh, listeners will find links in the description uh, uh, below. Um, what should we be on the lookout for, twenty twenty four, in in different uh, communicates that uh, the press office will will put out? And you, you mentioned that there is this um, campaign around fur. Um, are we going to see some uh, uh, you know consequential actions in the future?
1: You know, we're certainly hoping so. I mean, I mean there, there is a, a resurgence of activism against the fur trade. There's a, an organization called the Coalition to Abolish the Fur Trade, uh, CAFT.USA, uh, that is sort of pushing this sort of um, regional, if not global, uh, effort to all of us pull together uh, to, to ban the fur trade. And, one of the reasons they, they chose fur and one of the reasons that fur is so important is that you have to pick the battles that you can win uh, first. And then once you get that, then you move on to the next one. So Foie Gras, for instance, is another one that's in the wings and another campaign that a lot of people are, are working on because that's a, that's an easy one. We can win that. Uh, we can win the fur campaign. We can win the Foie Gras campaign. Uh, so we, we picked the... Just to go up and say, oh, well, we're going to shut down McDonald's or something like that. I mean, you're not you're not going to do that. okay? that's not going to happen. But you can find these uh, uh, low hanging fruits, if you will, uh, uh, and campaign against them. So uh, and often where there's an above ground campaign, such as the coalition to abolish the fur trade, which is an above ground campaign uh, targeting certain companies. They've already uh, seen more than a dozen companies agree to stop selling fur after they've been uh, targeted. above-ground protests and, and other actions. Uh, but oftentimes, the uh, the underground, the ALF and other underground groups, when they see an above-ground campaign going on like this, they'll step up and, and add to that campaign. Uh, we saw that uh, uh, explicitly in the uh, Stop Huntington Animal Cruelty campaign uh, back in the late 90s, early 1000s, uh, where there was a campaign against Huntington Life Sciences, which was an animal testing company uh, that was killing 500 animals a day testing things like oven cleaner and shampoo and drugs and all kinds of things on animals. Uh, there was an above ground campaign that focused on putting that lab out of business but the underground also stepped up and and, and found ways to get involved as well. So we, we were expecting to see that kind of action going forward in 2024. Um, uh, perhaps people from the underground stepping up to uh, join the campaign to abolish the fur trade.
0: Yeah, so stay tuned, uh, people. And what, as a parting question, what would be your message for uh, vegans who um, might be tempted to take action or are hesitating? Um, what could you say to encourage them to take action and do more than just be vegan?
1: Absolutely. I, th- I think if, if you're of the persuasion that uh, illegal direct action is a good strategy, that it's an effective strategy, as we do, as we believe, uh, then I would encourage you to get involved. And that that might mean things like not being involved in above ground animal rights. It might mean not showing up at protests and, and maybe not doing things uh, because you want to stay under the radar. Uh, but uh, it's it's not do not do it for glorification because you can't tell people that you're doing it or you'll get caught. Uh, it has to be something that you do because you believe in it and because you think the animals deserve it. If I was an animal in a cage and I was going to be killed, um, I personally would want somebody that was trying to do something about that right away, not somebody that was, um, you know, trying to pass legislation or, or something else. I mean, I So if you're of that persuasion, then educate yourself. There's lots of resources on our website, uh, AnimalLiberationPressOffice.org. And of course, there's lots of ways to find more information about that. Buy the book that you were talking about uh, uh, from our website or from Amazon. Uh, uh, Lots of ways to, to learn more. There's a... Uh, there's a book called the blueprint also available on amazon or our website that talks about the fur trade it has a listing of all the north american fur farms in the entire country it has their addresses and their phone numbers and where to find them and it also has hints on uh on how to raid them so lots of ways to educate yourself out there go out there and get involved and then uh, shoot us an anonymous email let us know about
0: it amazing so jerry um Thank you so much for having answered my question. Did you have something to add before uh, we stop the recording?
1: No, thank you so much for having me on the show. I I appreciate your uh, enthusiasm and and your uh, willingness to get this information out there. Uh, And uh, I hope I was of of some use to you, thanks.
0: Of course, this was an amazing, interesting, uh, truly fascinating conversation. Uh, So thank you so much, Jerry, uh, for having accepted my invitation and for uh, having uh, answered my questions. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Before you go, there is a question I wish I had thought to ask Jerry during our conversation. The question is, why do you think animal rights and the vegan cause are not more appealing to a conservative audience? Would you attribute it to a failure of activists to advocate for animal rights in conservative circles? I had the chance to ask him this very question by email, and his response will surprise you. I invite you to read his answer in the description below. Also, if you have your own opinion on the topic, I invite you to share it with me. Once again, thank you so much for being a friend of this show. Take care and see you next week.